Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Hello, everybody. This is David Lickin, broadcasting live from Denver, Colorado. We're here at the Mortgage Collaborative and having a great time at the Four Seasons listening to industry professionals speaking. And we're dialed in with some new technology, and uh, we're going to be interested to see if this works. Anytime you go and do these remote broadcasts, we are just... um, it's just one of those things. So anyway, I am going to get rid of that music in the background and get ready to just get into talking with you all. So good to have you be with us again. It is Monday, the August 22nd, and it is this broadcast is created by Mortgage Professionals for Mortgage Professionals. And we're the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Award, the Innovation Award. So very good to have that award. And we're also thrilled to have with us some special guests today. We've got Gary Acosta, who is the founder of both the Mortgage Collaborative, but also the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. And Gary's sitting here right next to me. Joe's right next to me. We've got a great uh, program lined up. And we've got Alice Alvey. Now, we're going to change up the format a little bit for our listeners. We've got Alice that has some very important information we're going to give up. So Paul and Sam will not be joining us today, although I do encourage you to go check out their websites. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but we're really excited to have you tune in and be a part of us. And uh, Alice has got very important information to get into. Let's say a quick thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI, creator of the Innovative Race Star Program. We'll hear from Jim Jump in a bit. Uh, Motivity Solutions, they're here at this conference. This, are also, this, are, this is their hometown. We're excited to have um, be with them at this conference, and they have their user conference coming up here about a month out. We'll be back in the same facility here at the Four Seasons in Denver for their user conference. If you're not signed up, get into that one. Uh, Motivity, again, is the leading real-time reporting dashboard and scorecard system. Also want to say a big thank you to Velma, the le- virtual electronic marketing assistant. That's what Velma is an acronym for. And they do a great job of getting the word out about our podcast uh, that we do each week. But also, you can set up a forget it, set it and forget it e- email auto campaigns, auto email campaigns, or you can create custom emails campaigns email campaigns on the fly they do a great job of helping you craft your message that's one of the things i value most about brand he really helps craft your message and get the message right he knows what he's doing and i encourage you to help get his help in getting the messages sent out so get a hold of velma b-e-l-m-a at b-e-l-m-a.com or get a hold of brent at 208-854-7909 Simplifile, so glad to have them as a partner in this podcast. They do a great job of giving you the ability to collaborate and uh, work directly with settlements agents in a real-time chat and messaging format that allows you to track changes, send, receive, validate documents, as well as obtain status updates and deal with issues as they arise. All of this is done in a real-time electronic communication exchange and it's the best way, and then best of all, you can have an audit trail. So if those regulators knock on your door, say what's going on, you know what's going on, you can tell them, here's our audit trail of this one. Here's my communication I did on this. Go away. Don't bug me. All right. So we probably won't say that part of it. But anyway, Simplifile, S-I-M-P. 
L-I-F-I-L-E.com or call Nancy Alley and her team at 1-800-460-5657. Of course, D&H, they're one of our sponsors. Very glad to have them here. That's one of the top technology companies in the nation. Certainly one of the, the longest that have been around for over 140 years, 5,500 employees worldwide, having 8,000 clients in 70 countries. And they've got the innovative MortgageBot product. It's an all-in-one LOS system. Probably one of the best features I'm hearing about that is their POS system. So I encourage you to check it out at MortgageBot.com or call them at 1-800-815-5592. Then, again, special thank you to the Mortgage Collaborative. This event is put on by them. It was created, again, by our guests. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but check that out at MortgageCollaborative.com or call Rich Zerbinski, one of my favorite people. Great guy. Very knowledgeable can give you a lot of information one of the most networked guys because he's with the power of the network which is the mortgage collaborative call him at 440-552-0691 let's talk about upcoming conferences we're at the mortgage collaborative conference but october 23rd through the 26th is the annual conference at the in boston at the heinz convention center if you're not signed up for that get signed up hotels are disappearing fast talking to david stevens that uh, conference is already way oversold and uh hotel spot i mean they have thousands of extra people that have not that are coming and it's first time company so this will be one of the most attended conferences out there I encourage you to check it out we've got james taylor a lot of good stuff going on out there so uh, let's talk a little bit about mba membership if you're not a part of the mba you need to get a part of it uh get a hold of trisha and you can reach her at 202-557-2858. There you go. We got the announcements out of the way. We got Joe Farr sitting right here with me, ready to give us a market update. Hi, Dave. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's special being able to do this eye-to-eye here. Yeah, we don't get to do that. Yeah. You're always dialed in. I'm out there in different locations. So let's run through what's happening with the markets. Well, right now we're up. We're up uh, 530 seconds. No real news. No economic events to, to point to. It's just... Uh, really just kind of reversing some of what happened late Friday where we saw a drop in MBS prices late in the day. And uh, so, yeah, we're up today. Good. Love hearing that. Last week, let's talk about last yeah. week. It was a little volatile last week. And, and uh, for the week, MBS prices fell about 20 basis points. Fed speakers and the Fed minutes really were the cause of much of the movement that happened last week. Starting on Tuesday, uh, the Fed Dudley made comments that uh, – Basically, it was warning the investor community that they had built in too few rate increases. I found that really interesting. That was fascinating. But then, and MBS prices fell on that news on on Wednesday, though. The Fed statement said uh, the FOMC is divided. And uh, investors found little new information there and and basically reversed uh, the movement from Tuesday. But then on on Thursday... Another Fed speaker, uh, this one, it was uh, Bullard, Bullard yeah. who uh, who basically said, we only need one rate hike in the foreseeable future. So, you know, all in all, the, the Fed caused a lot of movement. Uh, uh, you know, the net for the week, again, was a little bit down, but most of that happened after the Fed speakers. So uh, the economic data that came out was mixed. Uh, core, PC, core CPI was tame, mm-hmm. you know, not a, not a real issue. Industrial production was better than expected. Uh, home builder confidence improved, and therefore you might expect housing starts improve a little bit, not much. Uh, and then jobless claims remain low. Now, looking at this week, there is uh, you have some, uh, some important information uh, to look for. The 
Treasury auctions. I always look at those. Three, five, and seven-year auctions on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, Existing home sales comes out on Wednesday. Durable orders on Thursday. We'll get the second look at uh, second quarter GDP on Friday. And uh, uh, the consensus calls for the the report to be a little bit lower, dropped by a tenth from uh, what had been recorded the first estimate. Then uh, the big event is going to be Fed Chair Yellen's speech at the Jackson Hole Conference on Friday. So, you know, before then, we might see things hanging around about where we are. But uh, who knows what's going to happen when she begins to speak. It starts at 10 o'clock Eastern time on Friday. Well, it is going to be a lot of good information. And, folks, I don't know how anyone runs their business any longer without having this service called MBS Quote Line. And so... We're just uh, excited to have them as a partner, excited to have Joe sitting here with me, which is so unusual. And we're going to be right back with Alice Alvey. She's got an important update and a lot of regulatory information. So we're going to be almost running like two hot topic segments in this one podcast. We're going to be right back with Alice after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteland delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteland, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteland today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 the Lickin' on lending show is back here is your host david Lickin. i don't know if it's cutting out on your guys's end but it certainly is cutting out over here on our side when we're listening to some of the stuff so hopefully this is all going through we've got andy shell the prophet doctor who doubles he doubles us a lot of things triples himself out there but he's always our sound engineer so andy you can jump in if we need to have a repeat anything that we're missing let us know dave savage is walking by mortgage coach good to see you david good to have so many fun many people here at this conference but let's get alice alvey on the broadcast alice you're giving us an important update on what's happening with humda we've got a lot of changes so alice if you could give us a rundown and a quick overview of the humda changes Thanks, Dave. Yeah, we wanted to make sure, you know, we've said many shows in the past that it was about time we had to devote a show to just give you all a quick, good summary on the Honda changes. I've been throwing little bits and pieces out there, and I keep hearing from people, wait a minute, that was only part of the story. So we're going to put all the story here in this one recording for you so that you have an easy place to reference back to. So just as a, a quick overview, we've talked about that the new rule has several key components. Essentially, Um, there's going to be a new reporting tool used by the CFPB that actually starts with your 2017 loans. So what this means to the industry is really CFPB is going to have much more control of the data, much uh, higher degree of ability to conduct their own analytics uh, with this tool. So it's all going to be required to be funneled through uh, this new component, and you'll be working on that with your LOS providers throughout the rest of this year so that you can get started for that. No new new way that you'll be filing the report that's effective for next year's loans. You've got got to have a handle on that by January 1st. I think people keep thinking this is years out there. Then, of course, are the new 23 data fields and 14 or so others that are getting modified. So we all have to take the time to make sure that we're learning um, the components and how to file each of those. 
I was just reading a report, Dave, from a vendor group, and it had about 30 questions just related to trying to interpret the rule on different scenarios for a particular field, right? If I have this, then how do I fill in this field? You know, one example is we're now going to report DTI. Well, what if I have two DTIs that I use in qualifying? Which one do I put in there? Those types of things. So lots of new fields. And then there's new trigger points for who must file. And I keep seeing in the press on the depository side how this is a good thing, fewer depositories. I don't know if lenders are really aware more lenders will have to file than in the past, and that's another area I wanted to make sure we had a few minutes to talk about. So those are the three biggest changes uh, about the rule in a nutshell. Hey, Alice, this is Joe. Uh, a quick question for you is, is you know, simply what, what new risks uh, do these new rules pose for lenders? Well, um, in, in, my, in my opinion, what I see is that I don't think a lot of lenders really know where they stand today with their Honda data in relationship to the file. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of new fair lending risk that's making the press, and everybody's concerned about that, certainly. With the new fields, there's new data that's going to be readily available to analyze. Um, but this new tool that actually starts January 1st means you've really got to have your act together starting of 2017, I think a lot of folks, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, think this is way out there. Um, so, And also we have to solve which fields are going to be made public. So our risks are in the fair lending side, and really, do you know where you stand today? Do so you know what you need to do to be improving for the new reports? Well, and Alice, what about the systems? There are automated systems out there that help you produce these Humda uh, reports. Are they going to be available and working? Well, they, they should be. So there are plenty of software providers out there that actually will audit the Humda data just as you're submitting it, or your LOS provider, right, does a field-to-field check. So I call that a horizontal look, right? The, the, they, the data systems can look at things horizontally, and they can look at it vertically within the report and compare that to your LOS, but none of them look at what actually happened in the documents, right? That, that's the key component. Um, so, yeah, the automated systems do a good job of comparing what they can see, but there's a lot that they can't see in the actual paperwork. And that's where the regulators know to look to find the mistakes. Okay, so, Alice, <laughs> if there's a mistake, then, and I actually have a follow-up to Joe's prior question, but let's start with, if there's a mistake, what are the fines? What happens if we have bad data? Well, I, I don't. If, Andy, you go way back with Humda data, just like I do. I mean, I, I remember I used to have a metric, you know, where I could say I remember a regulator saying, "Well, it was five thousand dollars per day per error," and that started to escalate my tension level very high. <laughs> we knew there was math yeah. specifically, but there. There isn't any today. The, the rule today does not say if you have X number of errors, then it will be X number of dollars of fines or penalties. So it's all subjective. You know, it, it's all about how the regulator wants to assess how you've been performing in past reports and what they actually find. Um, so I can let you know, I mean, if you just take a look at for every 100 loans, you have 2,700 fields where an error can occur. In 2018, that's going to increase to 5,000 fields per 100 loans. So if you think fines and penalties might be on a per unit, per error basis, <laughs> <laughs> 
There's some big multiplication changes there. That sounds scary. Wow. Good you're bringing this to everybody's attention. Andy, you had did a follow-up question. Yeah, did you have a follow-up question? Well, or? I'm just I'm just thinking about, well, actually I have two. One, one is that in these origination systems that have the <clears throat> various tools that connect with the loan application register, are, are you... Are you thinking that the LOSs are going to be ready for this? I mean, so basically, this is August, so they got September. They got four months to be able to have their system capture all the right data on January the first. So in four months, am I right there, Alice? In four months, the LOS have to be able to capture the new data. They actually have another year on top of that. So January first is when they start using the new tool, and you get to use the same data. So it's January 1st of 2018, where we need to actually start collecting the data. Oh, So they okay. have a year, but they have a lot of unanswered questions. It's just like TRID, right? Just when like they TRID. start to okay. go do programming, there's, they're missing information to be able to complete the programming. Oh, thank you for clarifying that because I was getting really worried yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, people look at that time clock and they go, oh, I have all kinds of time. Like, we did, we thought we had plenty of time with TRID with 21 months. So uh, <laughs> we don't have a lot of time in the programming world. Well, Joe, if I can ask just one other quick question here. And um, I wanted to s differentiate between uh, ECOA and HUMDA for the reporting requirements that, and then we've got NMLS folded in between all of that. So, you know, RESPA, HMDA, ECOA, NMLS, and RESPA. So all that, all those acronyms just, you know, confuse people. So can you explain that a little bit more clearly? Yeah, I'll just add, so in uh, the beginning of this year, NMLS did change their definition of an application slightly because I think they could see that they, they weren't aligned with HUMDA, and this was causing problems in the LOS uh, programming. So that still exists today. So there's a new, longer definition of an application for NMLS, but it still means that group of loans is different than the HUMDA reporting. And then, so ECOA is a dicey thing, which I think you're talking about, um, Andy, is ECOA picks up loans that wouldn't necessarily be filed under HUMDA because you need a property address um, other than pre-approval denials for HUMDA. Um, so folks do need to spend a lot of time making sure they're very clear that, A, those aren't the same report, and they have solid policies and procedures to make sure that those that very beginning stage, do I have an application or not for NMLS under ECOA and HUMDA, those are all very different applications. And I see a lot of companies who don't get that very first step right, which means automatically your HUMDA report is wrong. And so NMLS that, report. <laughs> so just to be really clear, because this, this confuses me, so I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm understanding. So <clears throat> an ECOA loan would go on the NMLS, but not necessarily on HUMDA if it didn't have the six pieces. But uh, a RESPA loan is going to go on HUMDA. So is it true that NMLS would be both the ECOA-only loans and the RESPA loans together, or are there others that are separated out? Um, so just to be clear, I use the term TILA instead of RESPA, right? In today's day and age, right? We're we're always we're going to say the truth in lending. So with because uh, it's all together now, right? In our combined disclosures. Um, so yes, the six pieces of information is HMDA and NMLS, 
But in NMLS, you have those inquiries that could end up being reported. And those may not have a property address, and there could be just like a credit pull where it wouldn't be required under HUMDA, but it would be required for NMLS. Perfect. Thanks, Alice. Okay. You're welcome. All right, Alice. So, so you mentioned how many more fields there are, and that's just going to make – I know you've been doing audits of people. What kind of pain points do you see in the audits that you're doing now, and, and are those pain points going to live on or be magnified under the new – data. Yeah, that's a great point, Joe. So we have been conducting audits for lenders because you need eyes into the loan file, right? You need to see the adverse action documentation. You need to see what happened with all the underwriting decisions, right? It's the, the biggest pain point is the loans that don't close, right? If I originated a loan, it went through lots of checks and balances. And, and most of the time, except sometimes in escrow closing states, those are uh, fairly well reported. But anything that didn't close is the stuff that starts to cause a problem. So um, any, that's where we, you know, it, it, do, you, do you have confidence in your process for withdrawn, approved but not accepted, closed for incompleteness, denied? All of that um, causes problems in two fields. Did you have the correct action type in the first place, and did you have the date right? If one is wrong, you usually have both wrong. So it's a two-field, you know, error right there. Um, another area we're seeing big problems is if a company switched their LOS. And in the TRID implementation, company, many companies switched their LOS at the same time because they couldn't, their, current, their LOS couldn't handle it. So they made an a LOS change. Um, or they had patches put in to accommodate TRID, and without realizing it, they had a, a domino effect into their LAR report. So that is a big pain point for 2016 loans and 2015 because you had the end of last year where that was impacted. So we're helping customers get through that as well. Um, another area I think is uh, companies are missing that the government monitoring information, GMI for short, is n not correct from the initial to the final or it changed or, you know, somewhere along the line the borrower filled it in. You've got four ten of threes in a file and one of them might have GMI information on the other three don't, so now what do you do? Those are the examples of things that when we manually look at a file and our teams go in and check, we put our SMEs in there, and we can see, wow, you have a procedural problem and your folks aren't really understanding what to follow to fill in the data right. So, um, And then are you confident that um, your staff knows the difference between all of this and they've got the right fields to, uh, or they've got the right procedures to know what to follow? Those are the biggest wow. things we've seen uh, kind of explode over the last uh, 2015 and 16 reports. So, Alice, then, in looking at all of this, how, you know, and actually I think you could probably go back and we can almost do another show sometime on the um, withdrawn, the incompleteness, all the adverse action associated side of this. <clears throat> along with what to do with LOS changes, that, that last question that you just responded to that Joe asked has so much depth to it that, you know, we, I know we got to move on now, but I, I would love to hear more about what yeah. to do about fixing that. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Especially, Alice, when you say we see this error a lot, that means we need to talk about it more. <clears throat> So, Alice, uh, Dave, you want to take the last 
question? Yeah, let's then? just take a look at you know what should lenders do to prepare, Alice. I think that's one of the most important things. I'm looking at the clock. We want to get you know, uh, over to Gary, but in a few moments and get a few more sponsors ads in there. But uh, just what what should lenders start thinking about as they start preparing for this? Well, I think the first thing is make sure you know you have to file. Uh, who the, it, what happens for your filing triggering? Um, CFPB does have a new chart for lenders. And they've eliminated the asset test for lenders, so which means some companies may have been excluded from having to report uh, because their assets were lower. Uh, so that's gone now. So as a lender, basically, if you are lending, you're non-depository, your main primary business is to do, uh, take mortgage applications. If you have 25 closed-end mortgage loans in each of the preceding two calendar years that you originated, you made the lending decision. This is no longer about who funded the loan. Set that aside. Did you make the underwriting decision on 25 loans that actually closed? Then you trigger. Now, that's a big change because the number used to be 100. So that's what's looping in more people, and I can't believe that folks aren't talking about that more. So you could end up essentially having to file and, and maybe you didn't file before. So, you know, lenders are going to have to file. So analyze your 2015 data for accuracy, I think, is my next point that I want to make sure every, yeah. everybody goes after. Look at your first quarter of 2016. Uh, we are happy to look at that. We've got phenomenal systems and reporting where all your work lately. So CFPB says show me exactly how you checked all of this. We've got, you know, a three-step audit process that we can show uh, that you've really checked your files at the depth that needs to be. Uh, that will help you make sure you've got your procedures and systems locked up. Uh, we can help you with the corrective plans uh, for a action plan. And, you know, months of errors build up really fast. You know, high numbers build up really fast. So uh, don't wait. Uh, don't wait, yeah. Yeah. And then um, – Analyze the data in relationship to NMLS, which Andy already uh, mentioned earlier. So that was the other thing is uh, prepare both. Don't just yep. necessarily just prepare HUMDA for the new reporting. Uh, so lots of things can make your HUMDA law a, a problem. Data changes after the report's filed. If you have poor pipeline management or poor prequal management, you will have HUMDA problems. So You um, will have HUMDA problems. Don't. That. <laughs> and, and, and HUMDA problems has, means CFPP problems, CFPB problems. You've got audit problems. You've got a lot of issues that come with that. Uh, Alice, you've got the, you're speaking at the MBA Risk Management Conference. If you could give some reference to that so those that are thinking about whether or not to go there, and then we're going to get over to Gary. Sure. So the MBA Risk Management QA and Fraud Prevention Conference is in Los Angeles. Uh, it's in September. Wednesday, September 28th, um, I am teaching a class with Fannie Mae on appraisals. So we're going to be getting ah. Fannie Mae in front, talking about collateral underwriter. We're going to be talking about appraisal problems that lenders are having and how to solve all this. So it's definitely good for anybody in underwriting, quality control, who wants to, a really great environment for lots of open Q&A. We get some new folks, people who are processors who are becoming underwriters. We have managers. We have high-skilled underwriters there. It's a great forum for all levels of skill, and it's the day before that risk management conference. So we'd love to have all oh, of you Oh, it's the there. day before uh, the conference. Okay. Website. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's the day like before. It's like a pre-training day that they put in there. Yeah. Uh. So if you're making travel plans for that conference or you're thinking about whether or not to go, another reason to go out to that conference. Alice, thank you so much. I really want to continue the discussion. There's a lot more uh, comments that 
could be talking a lot more discussion around the Humda. And as, as Andy was distinguishing, trying to get it distinguished from from the others, the Echo and other. So I think it's um, it's really good. We need to talk, continue this conversation. We'd like to do so next week. Really appreciate it, Alice. Thanks, Dave. You bet. We'll stay on the line, Alice and Andy, because we're going to be interviewing uh, Gary Acosta, who is the founder of the Mortgage Collaborative, also the founder of the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. And you can check out that website for those of us that want to go check it out. The, you know, go check out NAHREP, N-A-H-R-E-P.org. Got it right. How about that? Gary confirmed it. So anyway, we're going to be right back after this brief break with Jim Jump giving us update on the Arch Rate Star product. Jim? Hi, David. Thanks for having me on, and we're happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. And today I'd like again to talk about Rate Star from Arch Mortgage Insurance. RateStar is a revolutionary tool that allows mortgage originators to dynamically price mortgage insurance and match coverage to Archimize's most competitive rates. And that's important because it allows you to compete more effectively, qualify more borrowers, and of course close more loans. That's the power of RateStar. Originators from around the country are letting us know just how quick and easy RateStar is to use. And all you need is your NMLS number, and you can access RateStar anywhere, anytime, using multiple points of entry, including most LOS systems, product and pricing engines, and through our websites at archmi.com and archmicu.com for credit unions. And of course, it's available through our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. RateStar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. You just touch, tap, and go. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive ArchMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. And I have to tell you, David, getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you and say thanks. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Jim. And then also, for those that did not notice it, there was a big announcement made uh, this last week. Arch MI bought who? United Guarantee. You know what? I, I was teasing the folks at United Guarantee. They were, was, oops, sorry about that. Turning up the mic, trying to get this right, and it keeps popping around on me. So anyway, um, I was teasing. That's what happens when you stop advertising on the radio program. The new advertiser acquires the old advertiser. So I had a little fun with that one. But anyway, it's really good. Now, also, we want to go to a real quick word from the KPI of the week. I get more feedback on the KPIs of the week. And so here is John Maynell with the KPI of the week as it relates to underwriting to closing. Hello, Dave. Thanks very much. Great to be here as always. And this week we have another key performance indicator related to TRID. And the KPI is underwriting to closing days. And like all TRID metrics, the focus is the estimated closing date and how far in advance a file should be submitted to underwriting to make provisions for any and all underwriting eventualities, possibly multiple resubmissions, and leaving enough time after final approval to finish the loan and deliver the closing disclosure on time. A very common practice for lenders that have automated their analytics with mortgage business intelligence like Movation is to have the system automatically send email alerts to participants on those loans that are running late and at risk of missing these milestone deadlines. Now, this allows loan participants to continually reprioritize their workflow to ensure they remain compliant, clearly demonstrating again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will thank you once again and turn it back to you. So good to have you with us, everybody. We are pleased to be here at the and a part of the Ultimate Network, which is the Mortgage Collaborative. They do a great job, and I'm really excited that Gary Acosta would take the time to join us. And so, Gary, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Good to be here. It's really good to have you here. Uh, one of the things I want to start talking about is that you've started several organizations. Uh, you started the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. So I want to go there. And then also then you started the Mortgage Collaborative along with Jim Parks. The two of you created that, if I yeah, understand. Jim, Jim and then Dave Kittle and John uh, Robbins. Yeah. yeah. So was it that group? I, I, mean, I want to Maybe we should start with talking about that because I want to talk about the National Association of Real Estate Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. I want to spend more time there because of the dynamics that's coming into the market. And so let's talk a little bit, start by talking sure. about the collaborative. You launched this, and I want to get some insights and I'll give our listeners insights of what did you purpose to do with the collaborative? What was the motivation to start this? And then Andy and Alice, if you want to jump in on any questions, welcome that as well. Yeah, well, first of all, I am a product of the mortgage industry. So I've been a mortgage entrepreneur for 25 plus years and have been in the business, owned my companies uh, over those years uh, and was a practitioner first and foremost. Uh, when I started NARUP, I started to get involved in sort of the industry dynamic a little bit, got involved in the MBA, just kind of learned that side of the business policy, advocacy, that sort of thing. Um, and when the market was really kind of coming through its changes, when we went through the crash and we're coming through the other side of that, we started to recognize that there were going to be big changes in the industry. The industry was going to be different than what it was before, probably in a profound way. Uh, and mortgage originators were going to have to make those adjustments. And at that point, we really thought, and I say we, I'm talking about Jim Park and myself, uh, initially thought that the best role, the best contribution that we can make to the industry would be to create uh, a co-op, create an organization that really help mortgage lenders prepare for the changes both in terms of regulatory capacity, right. uh, but also in terms of the changing demographics. The, the face of the borrower, the face of the consumer was going to change in a big way. And we really thought there was an opportunity for us to uh, add value in that regard. Well, there's no question. And one of the things that's most impressive about the mortgage collaborative is you have the MBA's endorsement and involvement, and there's a real unique partnership with the MBA. So those that are considering becoming a member, as I am, and many, I mean, your group is exploding here in size. Um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that the MBA and the partnership, that, that is a unique aspect of this. That's, and that's not something easy to do because well, the MBA not. is pretty protective of that's, their that's brand. A, that's a very good point. So uh, having the, the, the partnership with the MBA was very important to us uh, in the beginning if for no other reason, because of uh, John Robbins and David Kittle's right. involvement, both past chairman of the NBA, very deep roots there. Um, we're not the first group to put together a, uh, a mortgage co-op, as you probably know. And historically, the relationship with the NBA and some of those groups has not necessarily been yeah. as healthy right. as maybe it should be. And, you know, without getting into much detail there, uh, we didn't think that was necessarily the case. We do not ever view the participation in the mortgage collaborative as an alternative to the mortgage Good. bankers association. That's we always key. saw it as an enhancement to that, a specialty organization, something that added additional value. So Dave Stevens, great friend, uh, somebody I've known for about 15 years. Uh, when we told him that we were going to do this, we wanted him to be very clear that what we wanted to do was uh, to create uh, a specialty organization that really added value, particularly for the mid to small size mortgage important to them as well. And but we said that if we did this, we wanted to do it with their blessing, and uh, and, and you're very that fortunate we were able to work that out. That's, yeah. that's outstanding. And then having the past president, so Regina Lowry is a past president, that's right. John Robbins a past president, Kittle's Deb, a past Deb president, Still. Deb Stills here that's is right. a past president. I mean, is it five? Was it and, and, four? And, uh, uh, Bill Cosgrove. Oh, Bill as well. Cosgrove. Yeah, right. yeah, but he's not here at this particular one. That's right. Yeah. So Bill will listen to our podcast. Well, Bill, where are you? You need to hear <laughs> or give him a bad time. Uh, when you look at the agenda, what you're trying to foster here, how does this differ and the unique 
things that people can benefit from here. And I'll add a little bit to that, whatever you Yeah, want. you know, I think that uh, we're a relationship business. Yeah. This is a relationship business. Uh, there's information. It's a dyna- dynamic business, first of all. So there's changes happening all the time. So first and foremost, we wanted our members to have access to that information to the uh, decision makers, to people who were subject matter experts around the nuances in the industry and have, you know, firsthand uh, access to those folks. Second is an opportunity to create deeper relationship with their vendor partners, with people who are, are in a position to help those businesses become larger and more profitable over time. So this is really an organization about relationships. Um, and we try to set up all of the activities and all the sessions in a way to where it actually encourages people to build those relationships. Well, I, I could detest the fact that it accomplishes that. It's been great to be here, and I'm so honored to be a part of it. I want to shift gears and make sure we allow plenty of time, because what's going on with the demographics in this nation, it's so important we get there. But before we go there, Alice or Andy, do you have any questions regarding the collaborative or that come to mind as you're listening to this, or do you, should we switch over to the NAREP? I'm good. You're good, Andy. Alice? Uh, yeah, well, just uh, a quick question. I guess I'd like to know a little bit. Uh, you said it was catered towards the mid to small size uh, membership. So it, can you elaborate a little bit on how that group needs some different support? Is it really just about trying to get the voice that maybe other, they otherwise might not be able to get in, in, you know, just purely because of the size and resources? Yeah, I think that their issues are similar to the larger players, but there are differences and nuances. You know, there's, you know, the small, mid-sized independent mortgage bankers, you know, have relationships with warehouse lenders. Uh, they outsource a lot of the functions because they don't have the ability necessar- necessarily to internalize uh, a lot of the regulatory apparatus that the big guys do. And so uh, we wanted to create sort of a platform where they'd have access to that information and those relationships where they can get it in a cost-effective pa- fashion and, and be able to participate in what we consider to be best in class in terms of those services. Good response. Anything else, Alice? No, that's it. Thank you. Good, good, good. I want to get over to the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals, a great organization that has been around for a while, but many may not be aware of it. But yeah. the power and the size of that. So let's go to the same question. What? How long ago did you start that? And what was uh, your motivation to to bring this organization? Well, that out? was you know that's 16 years ago now, yeah. and so I was a much younger, sort of <laughs> naive individual in the space. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Ernie Reyes, who was a mentor of mine, passed away two years ago, was uh, the co-founder. And uh, Ernie was a real estate broker, uh, practitioner in San Diego, and I was a mortgage broker. And Ernie had a really significant uh, actual uh, political background. He was, oh, wow. he was Leon Panetta's chief of staff when Leon was a congressman up in Northern California. He understood the political process. He understood the importance of advocacy. I was a younger, sort of wide-eyed entrepreneur who wanted to take his business to the next level and didn't have access to mentors or people who can help me sort of get there. And then through a series of conversations, uh, somehow we just made the totally outrageous decision to start NAREP uh, with no real sort of idea what it would take to actually make that happen. So as they say, we built the canoe as we were paddling down the river. Andy talks a lot about that. As a <laughs> that right? There's a lot, you're not alone having done that. But yeah, so that's a great example. So you're building it as you're going. That's right. That's right. And we learned it as we went along. And, uh, but, you know, right around 2000 is when we started the organization. There was a lot of changes happening at that time already, mostly with the Internet right. and, 
And in 2000, the Hispanic community became the largest minority demographic in the country, surpassing the African-American community. So those things were sort of happening at the same time. And, uh, you know, Ernie encouraged me to kind of just let's do it. And uh, and we did. And, you know, I would say in the first years, David, you know, what we were doing more than anything else was creating awareness, just telling people that this was going to be an emerging demographic that was going to have a profound impact in the industry. Today, it's different. I don't have to make that sell quite as much. People are more interested in solutions. Great. We know the, the, the community is growing. Help us understand that community better. How can we sort of create services to be able to accommodate that changes, those changes? So it's a much more fun time for us, quite frankly. Well, you're uh, having phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk. You, let's fast forward. You just had your 2016 conference, did you not? Uh, no, that's so coming that's up. coming up next month. Oh, that's, that's coming right. up next month. Yeah, okay, yeah. for some reason, I thought you already had had that. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the size of the organization right now and the purpose. And what are you, What are you? is it advocacy? What are the benefits? For, and is it available to non-Hispanics? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so first of all, absolutely. So we're a mission-driven organization. Uh, we're all about advancing sustainable home ownership within the Hispanic community. We believe in home ownership. We believe it's a great thing. We believe that it leads to a greater quality of life. And so we want to empower the real estate professionals that serve Hispanic consumers to be in a great position to provide those services and serve the community well. And whether you're Hispanic or not, if you're serving Hispanic consumers, you are more than welcome uh, to come and participate in the organization. And I would say um, approximately 25% of our members are non-Hispanic. Wow, yeah. 25%. That's, That's right. right. So let's talk about some of the initiatives that you have going on, some of the, the, the things that are in your focus and for the Hispanic community. If you could give us in some insights into some of the um, challenges or areas that were those where our industry can come back and do a better job of supporting. So great question. So, so NARP, um, you asked a question about the size. So yeah, we have 26,000 individual Whoa. members. <laughs> 26,000? 26,000 individual members. We have 55 local chapters across the country. Wow. Um, and I would, say if I, I, I would say one of the things that's great about the organization is the members aren't just sort of passive members. They are very vested active members within the organization. So you come, which we'd love to have you come visit us at some point, visit a conference. You will see probably as much or more energy that you've ever seen at a real estate event. And so just a lot of enthusiasm for the organization. People are passionate about uh, a better life and being a participant in our industry. Uh, And so it's a great thing to see. So the organization is growing. Um, It's on on a pretty, you know, fast trajectory right now. Um, We do participate in public policy. So we have a policy conference every year in, in the spring. We had about 600 people out to Washington, D.C. doing Hill visits, focusing on issues that we think are especially relevant to the Hispanic homebuyer population. Access to low down payment mortgages, for example. You know, in, uh, uh, you, know, um, you know, the mortgage access issue is a big issue. Uh, yeah. Probably a bigger issue right now is access to a, affordable housing stock. Right. Mm-hmm. So the inventory issue, issue yeah, is a big issue. We don't talk about it quite as much because it's probably more complicated, but just creating, uh, you know, helping policymakers understand those those uh, issues. Uh, every so often we'll weigh in on things such as GSC reform and what's happening over at FHA uh, and some of those things uh, that have sort of some specific characteristics or, or nuances connected to the Hispanic community. One thing to really kind of make note of when you're talking about the Hispanic market um, about 70% of all Hispanic homebuyer transactions are to first-time homebuyers. Oh, really? To first-time homebuyers. And so when you think about that and you recognize that, you start to understand what are the issues that are most relevant to that community. 
right? So we're an organization, first of all, that certainly is focused on public policy. But even more than that, we're about professional education. We want the real estate practitioners that are serving the Hispanic community to be the best in the industry, to have access to the best information, the best tools and resources that are out there. Um, and we want them to serve the community well. Let's talk about sustainable home ownership. Yeah. One of the statistics, I was understanding that when a Hispanic gets that first time home, the probability of them going delinquent is less than some of the other demographics. Could you speak to that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, that, that's really great. So if you understand the Hispanic community, you understand how familia, family, is mm-hmm. central really to the culture yes. itself, right? Love and it. so when you think about that and you think about the importance of family, the importance of the home right. goes hand in hand with right. that. And so when Hispanics, like everybody else, have challenges, maybe they have gaps in their employment or they have a health issue or whatnot, you'll see the family rally around that situation to make sure that the home is preserved. And yes. so for that reason, you see the Hispanic community being some of the best performance, uh, seeing some of the best performance uh, in terms of loan performance within the Latino community, especially when you consider how much of the loans that are going to Hispanics are some of the riskier loans, the high LTV, uh, you know, first time home buyers. So is forth. there, um, for those that are looking to serve, do a better job of serving the Hispanic community and their own communities, are is there certain loan programs there that are, there's a greater propensity to use? You talked about FHA first time yeah. low down. Uh, how about, so let's talk about FHA and then let's, I want to get into Fannie and Freddie and how they're supporting the community. So uh, there's a kind of running joke inside the Latino community that FHA actually stands for for Hispanic Americans. <laughs> that. so, uh, so the FHA product has been very important to the Hispanic community for a long time. <laughs> first of all, of course, it accommodates low down payment, right. so 3%, uh, which for any first-time homebuyer is really important. But also there are nuances within the FHA program that are helpful, such as they allow for non-occupant co-borrowers, okay. right? So uh, you'll see sort of extended families sometimes pull their resources to buy that first home, right? And so for a non-Hispanic sort of uh, underwriter or whatnot and seeing a non-occupant co-borrower, that may seem like a much riskier sort of scenario, uh, but not so much within the Hispanic community because of the closeness of the family structure. So for some of those uh, issues within, um, you know, down payment assistance, for example, FHA tends to be a little bit more accommodating for down payment assistance right. programs. Um, and so FHA pro- product is important. The nuances within those products are useful. Uh, but you start to see some of the conventional products because we don't want to have access just to one product. We need a Fannie Mae. We need Freddie Mac. We need the conventional products to also be there and be available when the situation is, is, uh, is more relevant or more correct for those consumers. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see Fannie and Freddie really start to recognize this. I gave a talk last week or a week before. How long has been? Time flies so quickly. It was a week or week, two weeks ago up in um, Traverse City, Michigan. And I spoke on millennials and mm. demographics. And it was yeah. really interesting. Now, what's most interesting when you start looking at the millennial population, which I spent most of my focus looking at, that, that segment, that the millennials is actually growing in size because of the number of immigrants and the Hispanic contribution. To the millennial population is the fastest growing. That's causing that group to grow. That's right. So talk a little bit about the demographics and the growth because of that immigration. And then at, we're going to get we, uh, several people are already texting me saying, Dave, get into politics. You got to get here. We, we can probably anticipate who you're probably more in favor, of, especially with Donald talking is doing, but let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about some of the demographics of what's happening in there. It's, it's yeah, really so encouraging. First of all, uh, 25% of all millennials are Hispanic. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, my kids, you know, they're, they're part of that generation. Uh, but it's even more important to recognize that one of the reasons why the Hispanic community is so important to our industry in particular is because it is much, a much younger demographic. Right. Right. So the average Hispanic in this country is 10 to 15 years younger than the general population. Wow. And if you look at household formations, mm-hmm. who's forming households right now? Uh, Hispanics represent almost 50% of all new household formations nationwide right now. That is a significant, I was not aware of that. And I'll give you even one data point that's even more, uh, I think, compelling than that is if you look at those households that are being formed. So my daughter's in college. If she moves out with a roommate and they get an apartment, that's a household that's actually being formed. Hispanic households are twice as likely as the general population to be made up of at least uh, of two parents and at least one child. Wow. So much it. more aligned with the desire to pursue home ownership. So all of those things are uh, especially relevant. And it also sort of plays to one, I think, maybe not quite as intuitive factoid within the Hispanic community. And that is how technologically savvy they are. Yeah. Right. So That's interesting. They, Talk part- that. they participate in social media at a much higher rate than any other segment of our population, and it's primarily because they're younger. Let's talk about some of the technology components yeah. of this, because that's, that's an interesting statistic, because you look at what I think many Americans assume is that they're in the service industry. So many Hispanics are in the service industry working on that, and that they may not associate technology with that. But that's it right. makes sense when you have familia, the family. That is what Facebook specifically is so powerful is keeping family together. That's right. Yeah. And so, and so I can understand the technology. Uh, Bill Emerson was is here and gave a really inspirational talk yeah, yesterday. Speech. Really good last night, uh, yesterday afternoon. And uh, he talks about, of course, the rocket mortgage. And there's, you know, there, uh, uh, there's a couple comments about the rocket mortgage. You know, is it sure. really the future? Let's talk about the adoption of technology as a related application in the mortgage industry. Do you see the Hispanic population embracing something like the Rocket Mortgage or Roostify or all the other companies that are out there providing the mobile apps? What, what, what's your so, thought on that? So, yes, with one caveat, and that is Hispanics, as a rule, make their purchasing decision based on trust more than anything else, ah. more than brand, more than price. If they trust you, they'll do business with you. And so one of the challenges for technology companies is how do you create that trust without that personal contact, right? right? And so I, the, the last thing I would ever do, David, would be bet against Quicken Loans, yeah. right? Because yeah, those, those guys are just smarter than you yeah, know, good. everybody, right? So, uh, but uh, I would say that their challenge is going to be how do they develop trust? How do they become a trusted brand within the Latino community, right? Because right now, the folks that are getting that business within the Hispanic community are the ones that are in the community. Cause I always say they can't trust you if they don't know you. Yep. Right. Yep. And so, yes, they love technology. Yes. They'll go online and they'll do some sort of, uh, so the behavior of millennials. I mean, millennials are doing more discovery online in advance of the transaction. Absolutely. They look at the home through Zillow. They look at the homes they want to do. So you're saying the millennials are, I mean, the Hispanics within the millennial population, they're going to do that as they're well. going to be doing that. And as far as rate discovery, they're going to be using the mobile apps and all the technology out there. So they're going to be doing the same thing. That's right. That's okay. right. But when it comes down to finalizing a transaction, that's where the, the way, there's more to know you what you before you owe. So it's know the person that you're dealing with. There's and, that trust factor. And that, that really, trust factor. really is that's important. Really, so what are some of the other things that we need to know that are might be slightly different than the rest of the, the demographics within the millennials? Well, you know, um, you, 
we're in a relationship. We're in a relationship business, right? We yeah, talk mortgages about mortgages. You know, yeah. So, so I tell people that if you're going to be successful in this business, you got to be good at relationships. If you're going to be successful in this business as it relates to the Hispanic community, you multiply that times four. Oh, really? Okay. Because relationships okay. are everything within the Hispanic community, right? So the realtor is the trusted advisor. Right. And the realtor in the Hispanic community is even beyond that. That is their, their financial guru for really? all intents and purposes, right? So helping them navigate through that process is really, really critical. You can't really get to the Hispanic consumer, at least from our industry standpoint, without developing those trusting relationships with realtors at that's, the end of the day. That's a really good data point because I think a lot of people are looking at, in some cases, we're seeing the realtor being disintermediated, kind of cut out of the process. But that's not the case. It's not the case here. And then with the Hispanic population, that's very interesting. Let's get back to talking. Is there anything more that comes to mind that, that, we sh- that leaps out that we should understand in, in if we start for those that want to pursue a deeper relationship with the Hispanic community. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk a little bit of what I see working out there yeah, right about now. What, works or what doesn't, you know, what as much as what does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I'll tell you what doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people, uh, you know, kind of over the last several years when, you know, they always kind of come to me and say, Hey, I've got this great solution for the Hispanic market. What do you think? And, you know, they start off by, Hey, I've, we've translated our website into Spanish. And, and, and they expect that people are just going to knock do down the door. And, and so that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. That doesn't, that doesn't it help. It's, not, it's a good step. But Well, I think you're right. It does help because it does make the statement at least yes. that you're committed to the marketplace. Right. right. And in that regard, it is important. Um, but when I sit down with mortgage companies and they ask me specifically, what do they really need to be successful in this space? They, one of the things they ask me right out of the gate is, do you have to be Hispanic to be able to That's be right. successful in serving the Hispanic marketplace? And I say definitively, absolutely not. I know a lot of non-Hispanics that are doing tremendous Give us an business. example. Give us an example of one. Give, does one come to mind that leaps off the page at you? Companies? Yeah. Or, or companies or, yeah. So there's companies out there such as Bay Equities. That, okay. uh, they're a player in, in California. They're spreading nationwide. Uh, they're not Hispanic-owned, uh, but they've made some good decisions in terms of staffing, and they focus on the products that I think are relevant, relevant to the Hispanic market. And then you got people like Jason Madero over at uh, Altera Home Loans. Yes, Hispanic Jason, I love Jason. 80. We're going to have him on the podcast. Yeah, he, We're going to have he and his mom on the podcast. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. I, I got to know when that's happening yeah. because his mom is amazing. Uh, you got Patty Ariello and uh, Rick Ariello, who yes. are New American Funding, yep. that have gone from a $1 billion business to a $10 billion wow. business in less than five years with a laser focus on the Hispanic market. And so what they've done, and this is, they're, they're, the, those two companies uh, are really a great case study, right? Yeah. Because I went to Feeney Me, and I did this presentation on the Hispanic market to their advisory group. And I said, let's look at these two companies, and let's break it down. First of all, they're independent mortgage bankers. So they don't really have any competitive advantage when it comes to product. They've right. got the same products as yep. everybody else. They don't really have any cost of funds advantage, right? They use right. warehouse lines. There. So how is it that they are destroying the competition when it comes to the Hispanic market? One thing and one thing only that differentiates them, and that is they have made a concerted effort to diversify their workforce like nobody else oh, has. Really? And not just at the sales level, at the operations level as well. Because if you ask an originator, whether he's Hispanic or not, who does a lot of business in the Hispanic community, why would you choose one company over another to work for? They'll tell you almost without hesitation because they know how to get my loans done. So wow. when I talk about those nuances yes. within those products, yeah. I talk about those underwriters that don't freak out when they see the non-occupant co-borrowers. That's what they mean by that, right? So I tell companies, if you want to develop a Hispanic marketing strategy, 
you start off by focusing on operations. Because if you have a diverse operations team that understands the nuances within the culture that can relate to your loan originators, they are going to attract the loan originators that you want. I'm looking at how quickly the time flies here. So I'm going to open the mic up to Alice and Andy to jump in with some comments or questions. Do you have anything, Al? Let's start with you, Alice, being polite here. Well, I love that you just used the word operations as a key point to start in. <laughs> surprise, surprise, you love that, Alice. <laughs> I know, the, the, the originators get all the credit, but it's really the ops people that do the work. Yeah, well, but it is so critical because, like you said, you know, the realtor definitely is an important component that we've heard uh, for, for this particular market. But so can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Um, I, I'm assuming that's offering from an operational side. I think of uh, my staff is well-trained. I have a diversified workforce who knows uh, some of the sensitivities that need to be considered. My underwriters really know the difference in, the, in some of the um, geographic uh, situations that you may be running into and cultural differences. Can you, is that, you know, tell us a little bit more about operationally how that makes a difference. Yeah, so we use a term called cultural competency. Uh, I like that. Repeat that. Yeah. Cultural, cultural competency. competency. So you want your operations team to be culturally competent. And that means that they're not, they're familiar and they're comfortable with the nuances, the kind of slight little variations that they see when they are actually underwriting or processing a loan from a, a diverse borrower. Um, and so having that sort of comfort and, and we talk about the products and right now we're not in a product driven environment, right. you know, you know, we're not like it was in 2004, 2005, where there was a new product, you know, every day and it was worse than the last one. You know, everybody fundamentally has the same products, but there are, as I said, nuances within those products that will make them uniquely relevant to Hispanic home buyers, right? So whether it's the ability to be able to do bond loans or do uh, accommodate down payment assistance programs, uh, being familiar with those programs, being able to close those deals on time, being able to deal with multi-generational borrowers that may be on the same application or whatnot. Not every Hispanic loan is like that. Don't let me give you the wrong okay. impression, right? So maybe it's more like one out of five, one out of four that's like that. Okay. But if I'm wa- as a loan originator walking into a real estate office, and that real estate office does a lot of Hispanic business, and they got five deals, and two of them require down payment assistance, right? If I can't do those loans well, I'm not going to get the other three, right? Right. So those are the types of things, those skill sets, closing the deal on time. I mean, Hispanic realtors are no different than anybody else in the sense that they just want the deal to get done. Yeah. They want the loan to get closed. But those loans sometimes require a little bit more skill. And, um, you know, if you have the operations team that can do that well, your loan officers are not only going to stay with you, they're going to go get all of their friends that are out there as well to come and be part of your, your company as well. Andy, let's run over to you. We're, right, we're almost out of time here, but go ahead. Get in a question if you want to. Yes. Thank you so much. Hey, Gary, great to hear your comments right on point. And, oh, thank and you. An, another thing I noticed that I believe is right on point are the 10 disciplines that you list on your website. Hmm. I believe you have to, be, um, have to have a multidimensional approach to life, you know, mind, body, soul, and it's not like some of the groups that it's all about me, but in your, on your site you list things like being generous to others, being active in your family, some really important, Good solid enough, yeah. points in addition to being the best in your, your business. Um, h- how do you encourage your members to embrace and actually implement these disciplines in their lives? 
So that's, that's a great question. And so um, one of the taglines that we sort of put out there uh, for NARP is we say it's where Hispanic culture and business opportunity intersect. And that value system is something that resonates across the association. And one of the reasons why people feel so vested and so passionate about the organization, what you're referring to is something we call the NARP 10. Uh, that we released early this year, which really articulates what we believe defines what it is to be a NARAP member. And uh, you're right. It talks about, you know, having a mature understanding of wealth and prosperity, right? It talks about being great at what you do from a professional standpoint, but it also talks about your commitment to family. It talks about, uh, you know, things as such as philanthropy and being generous to people uh, who are less fortunate than you. And the reason for that is because we believe nothing gives your work more meaning Nothing gives you more energy for the business that you do than, uh, than those things. And That's our members great. are really enthusiastic about those things. Those are the, what page are those on, on your Andy? I, I gave Andy the website, so he's doing, being the good student that he is. You can look under About Us, and then there's a tag there for, for an R10. All right. So, by the way, I apologize. I've got my, I'm doing this through my computer, <laughs> and I've realized notifications are coming through the broadcast. Oh, well, so anyway, we're obviously out of time. Give us your thoughts on the election. Uh, we've got two distinct selections. How do you talk about this? Well, all? you know, uh, it's, some, it's, it's interesting, right? So I always say that, his, that the NARP in particular as a trade association tends to do a little bit better in, in Republican administrations really? than Democratic administrations because we're a business organization, right. right? And both parties want access to the Hispanic community, right, right. of course. And so uh, we're not a civil rights group. And so, the, you know, when, we, when George Bush was president and the relationship we had with HUD and all that was really great. Not to say that it hasn't been great lately, but I, I want to just kind of dispel the notion that Hispanics are all sort of liberal leaning whatnot. But when you start your campaign, really sort of vilifying <laughs> a big segment of the Hispanic community, that's kind of a non-starter for that's, a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that in this case, Don, Donald Trump has an uphill battle really yeah, getting trust, acquiring trust from oh, the Hispanic man. community. Yeah, where he has my. If I listen to my wife, he he's a he's a you know, she's not at all Democratic. We've been Republican most of our lives, but you look at this thing, it is just ah, it's a wrong <laughs> tough thing. We as the drums start saying we are out of time. Gary, thank you so much. David, for been a privilege. Thank really, you. what an honor. We've got to have you on. I can't wait to get Jason and his mom on. Oh, you're gonna have what, that. that is going to be a wild one as well. So good, good to have you. Congratulations on your success with the collaborative, and also with your success with the National Association of Real Estate, Hispanic Real Estate All Professionals. Right. Thank yes. you so much. All Thank right. you. Check it out, nahrep.org, N-A-H-R-E-P.org. John Robbins is right out here about ready to pull me into a lunch meeting. It's fun to see some of the gray hair still around the business. John is just a legend, and good to have you. John will be right there with you. Thank you, everybody. Tune in next week. We're going to have uh, Tony Moss will be joining us, talking with uh, Mira Catalyst, talking about the, her upcoming event. Lots going on. So good to be with you, and we appreciate you telling others about the podcast. Have a great week, everybody. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin, of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Schell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week, and thank you for listening.